From KCRW Santa Monica and KCRW.com, it's The Treatment. treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. The last time I saw the gentleman sitting in front of me, he was wearing a tuxedo and welcoming people to the Academy Awards. But I've seen him in many other occasions, just not that close. Uh, I've seen him on stage. We know him as a writer, as a Tony-nominated actor from Scottsboro Boys, many other things. We know him as a TV star for his collaborations with Sam Levinson, and and also as a director, film director with Sam Levinson, and for his collaborations with George C. Wolfe, the latest of which is Rustin for Netflix. Of course, I'm talking about Coleman Domingo. I mean, I haven't talked to you about anything. It's musicality, because I was thinking back to when we had Donna Summer's daughter on, yeah. that incredible show you did with, with Des McEnough about Donna Summer, where you turned her into what she was, which is a cabaret performer. Yeah. You treated her like that rather than this goddess or this diva. You took her back to her roots. Absolutely. And and there is, in everything you do that I've seen you in, there's a musicality mm. in it. Wow. Now that you say that, I think at, at the core, there is an essence of musicality. And I think in the way I use my voice, the way I use my body... Jeffrey, who, who, who's been driving me this week, he says, you really love music. It's really a part of you. And I get, it really is. And I think even I love musicality of language. Maybe that's it. Like even when I, when I grew up, I had a, had a lisp uh, up until I was maybe like 12. And I just took speech therapy classes. And in that, I think I learned, you know, how to use language and musicality of language. And then, of course, my discovery of Shakespeare as well, and looking at, you know, how that how he moves language along and how to create parenthetical after parenthetical and lift language. I, I think that's beautiful. Well, it's, it's funny. One performance in particular, I don't know why I'm thinking about this because you brought up musicality. Faye Dunaway and Mommy Dearest, because you said this to me earlier, like, oh, you seem to sing your language. And I look at someone like Faye Dunaway. You look at Mommy Dearest. She really sang her language. You like any any of her the things that people even may look at as even be campy in her performance and everything. She really did know how to use language and and let it, let that emote in such an incredible way. And I feel like maybe that's possibly always been my approach to my way in with character, but especially with uh, Rustin, because I think Rustin was such a lover of language and he was he has such a fascinating mind. I don't know. I think that he he spoke. In colors, <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. Because I think that he he knew language was his uh, was his weapon, and I think I think when people learn how to use language in that way, whether as a writer, director, you name it, I think you know that that's your weaponry, and you can it's a tool. So I think that I knew that that was part of uh, Rustin. I think it's more than that. I think mm. for for you and for for Bayard Rustin as well, language is a calling. It's not just a weapon. Yeah. I mean, mm. it's this thing that's bigger than you. And you, when you're talking about Shakespeare, so much of that is about intentionality yeah. and knowing when to pause and knowing when to let the language flow because that that dictates breathing. And and the way that you perform Bayard Rustin, there is the intentionality of him knowing we can th- see him calculating what word to use, when to speak, and how to say it, and what the impact of that language is going to be. And I was just contrasting that with, uh, in my head, uh, with Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, hmm. where it's, he's really, it's almost like he's a jazz trumpeter. Yeah. He's spewing out that musicality to let people know that he is there. Yeah. You know, and, and there's almost an insecurity in that character yeah. as compared to the, the poise 
mm-hmm. and and the equipoise of of of, of Bayard Russell, I think. I think you're absolutely right. I think well, there's something that I think I I've always understood about my voice, and I think that I started to trust it more in my career, where I have so mu- so much resonance in my voice, and I'm and I play all the notes the highs, the lows, and I need to find all that musicality in my voice. So, and people will notice from like work to work that my voice changes. Cause I think that's a part of, that is a part of character. And you've got, you've got to find that way in through where the voice resonates. I make choices. Like, it's funny. Um, I have another film coming out on Christmas, uh, the color purple and in it, if, if any, I a know, little I, film called just little, little, the adaptation of the musical I, I just, I just the with one of the biggest cast <laughs> no Colvin G so that's I know, I know. they it's made just, a movie of that I know, it's, I know wow. Wow, wow. but in that in particular I think if anyone can really deconstruct my my vocal work because I can see it I go from young mister to older mister and I want to make sure that when he's younger there's more hope and brightness in his voice there's that enthusiasm of breathing almost like yes. you can't quite control it absolutely I t- I, so I really go there and then um as I made some choices knowing that he chewed tobacco and things like that, all the things that really help shape your voice, or even like loss of dreams or or not feeling you have agency in the world, what that does to your voice, it actually does something psychologically to your voice. You know, you can, it, can, it can drive the hope right out of your voice. And then you go to the darker resonators and everything to your voice. And so by the time we get to Mr. 1940s, it's a deep gravel husk. But and would contrast the brightness and and the, the 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 bright hues of his voice. So I really try to work with that vocally with with any character and really find it because I think that's where the character's truth is. It's a good thing we're on the radio because we're talking voices with my guest Coleman Domingo. I should congratulate him for his Golden Globe nomination. Oh, thanks. Uh, he's got two movies out. As he just reminded me, a little movie called The Color Purple. I think <laughs> it's in theaters around the country and on Netflix. Dustin Last Black script, a Jersey Wolf directing. He's playing Barrett Russell. You can also hear the show at kcrw.com/slash the treatment. But that fascinates me about you as an actor and as a writer that there's an observation of effect mm-hmm. and, and basically in effect a kind of a constant deconstruction of what you're doing i mean i, I feel it in mister just because by the end he's not really holding his head up anymore no but you know he's sitting on with his shoulders back at the beginning and and i was even thinking back to assassination nation oh man and and this person who wants to help yeah <laughs> and and the way you play hope so often and and, and pull that away from characters I think it's important to, I don't know, I feel maybe it's with my own personal discovery of character. How do where you mean? I'm interested in finding the light in the dark in all characters and find out where they, um, where their vulnerability lies. Even in villains, even people who are despicable people, I think that they, they have to have some humanity so we can really truly examine them and not sort of write them off. If anything, that's the thing I'm very interested in. So that's why I'm even drawn to like some of the darkest characters. You said that immediately flashed on Zola. Yeah, like Zola. Zola is, he's a horrific pimp in, in many ways. I want to challenge an audience with what they think or perceive about a character. It's like, if I sort of make you have a glimmer of love or respect for this character, 
it's wild to me. You know, but that's the goal. By the time Zola, and in particular, he's doing awful things and he's, you know, trafficking women and all this stuff. But then by the time he's up against another villain late in the game, you're on his side. You want him and all his superpowers and all that he does to win, to to trump that other pimp who's trying to take over. So that's the wildest thing where like suddenly you're on his side. So for me, that makes you think about how you can see yourself in character. <laughs> you know, at all times. I'm like, I want to be able to, my goal is to make you see yourself in the most horrific person and and then and also the most enlightened person, but also be challenged by by both. It's just saying that. I mean, there that to me is we're talking about all these characters and their awareness. If we go to Rustin, I mean, I think there is this kind of deep-seated confidence and we're talking about mission before yeah. in this thing that he's doing, but also that he's found the area of which he can exercise his gifts to the fullest. He can take people in, but he can also... And this is the thing that's so fascinating about this character, because we're talking about a bunch of characters who, that you played who are hiding things about themselves. Everything with, with, with Rustin is, is evident. He's yes. not hiding it's anything from, it's about himself. facing in every single way. By Rustin, in all my research and studies about this man, he was so singular in the way that he was uh, navigating through his world in spaces, spaces that were not set up for him. But I love the fact that if we go to his roots of how he got that way. You know what I mean? Like he was, you know, he was a, raised into a, Qu- a Quaker family in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Openly gay, he had the love of his grandparents who set him up in the world to say, be exactly who you are. So he knew that at all times, in many ways, he knew he was the smartest person in the room. He was curious. He was uh, very articulate and well-studied. I think he didn't speak out of turn. He didn't speak from some place that he didn't know. I think he had a, a curiosity and a fascination with with many things, whether it's food and art and civics and culture. So it gave him a true standing in the world to face the world on his own terms, even though, you know, being an openly gay man, navigating these spaces and these very heteronormative spaces, he was really demanding his place in the room at all times because he knew that he knew who he was in it. So that that's a fascinating character to me, someone who really was living a very uh, buoyant, uh, an ebullient life, at a time when we were, you know, supposed to be in the shadows uh, of the world, you know, and he was like, no, I demand the light and I demand a seat at the table. Well, that's the thing that fascinates me about that character and the way you play him, that all these things that we think was being archetypal, the impression of being a man of color, a gay man of color, presumably coming from an AME or Baptist background. He was none of those. He things. was none of those things. And, and in, that, <laughs> in that respect, he was, in his way, a man who was ahead of his time. Yes, absolutely. And brought the world closer to where he was yeah. rather than go along with things. And there is this sense of certitude in that character as yeah. you play him, who even when he's being assaulted is not defeated. No. And I want to ask you where that comes from. There's this thing in your eyes. You were constantly seeing in him, I will not go down. Hmm. And I want to ask you where that comes from for that. In the performance of it, it comes from not only myself, but it comes from that fire in George C. Wolf, my director's eyes. It comes from me. It comes from Dustin Lance Black and Julian Brees, who wrote the screenplay. I feel like there was a convergence, and it, and it had to live through me, to be very honest, of how do you portray this man who has so much fire and spirit and vulnerability. And it, I think it lies in our, the conversations that I would have with George, just about how he's navigated spaces. And, and, you know, George is one of the most brilliant directors on this planet. And knowing that, that it, it hasn't been an easy road. My, my career for myself is never an easy road, but you have to demand your space in 
make strides and room for yourself in industries that are not set up for you in many ways to really to really thrive and really not be hemmed in in many ways. You know what I mean? I feel like, you know, there's never been a box or container for me because I've always been an outlier and navigate. For me to have the career that I have right now, it's exceptional to even me. It's like, I just wanted to be a respect, respected actor and do things that were interesting and purposeful. And I know that, that there is something about Bayard and something about George and myself that devotes our livelihood and what we know is our gifts to service. You know, it, it is a it is a service job in many ways. I know that what I've been doing, you mentioned me as a writer, as a director, a producer, it's all in service to good story, moving the needle a little bit more. That's why I play in all these different spaces because it doesn't matter what I do. It's just like, I'm like, it's about how do I tell the story in the best way possible? And you know, and so I feel like that's my life as an artist. That's George's life as an artist. And I think Bayard devoted his entire life and his livelihood to service. It's the treatment. I'm being educated on the word service moment, I guess, Coleman Domingo. He's starring in a number of things right now, The Color Purple, and of course, Rustin on Netflix. We will take a break and I'll be further educated when we come back. It's the treatment. There's more to come. He's still swallowing. It's the treatment. My guest is Coleman Domingo. <laughs> He's starring as Byron Rustin in the film Rustin on Netflix. He's also playing Mr. in the adaptation of the stage musical, which is the adaptation of the film, which is the adaptation of Alice Walker's book, The Color Purple. <laughs> Go to the show at kcow.com slash the treatment. You're talking about service, and you played Ralph Abernathy before. I did. Because you play characters who are fighting self-awareness versus characters who are completely self-aware. Yeah. You're talking about Already he's black bottle. He just wants to be seen this one way. He just wants to get attention. He just wants to be noticed. Yeah. You played Abernathy in a really elegant way. Thank you. I watched the way he used his hands. And the way. <laughs> Thank you, man. You know, I think you know, I try. It's funny because when people meet me, they're like, "Oh, you're so different than the characters you play." I mean, I'm a bona fide <laughs> character actor. I'm like, yeah, I make decisions on their what they eat, or I have to find out all this information to make them a full human being. That just makes sense for me. So it's not just me showing up as a different character, you know? David O'Yellowell and I, when we did um, Selma, we even made a decision. I remember we were talking about this in the first day's rehearsal. We're like, oh, well, you know, we have to, I think we both were like, well, you know, I guess no more working out for a while because these weren't dudes who worked out. These are people who ate things that were meaty, cheesy, and greasy. You know, so we we had to like, <laughs> so we had to up our carb intake. So he was talking I'm, about how he had a, he would have a hard time picking up his kids. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. he just got tired. So Ex exactly. Well, we, we had to like find their bodies in many ways. I, I gained probably about, I think it was a little, a little heavier there. I was probably like 15 pounds heavier. And, you know, because that, that shows up in your face. And then also Ralph Abernathy was a man. He had, it was a little thicker. So, you know, we had to do all that stuff. But also the thing that was most important to me, and Ava set this up, Ava DuVernay set this up for us. We had audience with these civil rights leaders that were still alive, which was beautiful. Like, um, you know, Diane Nash and all. And we sat around with them for a good um, hour and we, we all made an agreement, all of, all of the actors, who said, oh, what do we want to ask them? We were like, okay, the rule is don't ask anything you can find on Wikipedia. All that's off the table. Ask all the, the, the human personal stuff. So that's why I found out that Ralph Abernathy used to make Martin laugh a lot. He would always tell jokes. He was always on a diet. I think that's what Andrew Young said. Ralphie was always on a, oh, Ralphie, they called him Ralphie. That's why David started calling me Ralphie in the movie. Ralphie used to always um, always be on a diet. You know, his wife was always putting him on a diet because he was just, you know, she was always concerned about his heart and things. So 
That's why suddenly in different scenes, Ava said, oh, where would you be? I'm, I'm sitting on the couch eating a meal. Or he's the first one to get some food. So all these things helped create character that just wasn't on the page. You're talking about being a storyteller. And so much of what you've done, I think of you first as a writer. Hmm, and I think you. of you as much as anything, probably writing and, and, your, and collaborating with the writers in your way for these characters. And, and that, it comes, that appends to the musicality we're talking about. Yeah. But it's also the way he moved. And we were just talking to Brett from ourselves a few weeks ago. And a scene with the, uh, where he refuses and everything's happening on that bus. Mm-hmm. And that physical posture of, I mean, you could have played it with shoulders down and looking up for, for supplication, but there's none of that in there. No, I think, that, I think he was joyously defiant in that way, that he was truly taking up space with his body and, and his posture. I think he was, um, especially even when, when I found it, you know, he was a star athlete, how he sang, he sang Elizabethan love songs, and he had a beautiful tenor voice. There is an elegance in... Um, and sort of a, a prince-like behavior, I think, the way he was moving through spaces, where he was demanding grace, I think. Yeah, you're saying on the bus, there's a posture where he's sitting, he's like, no, I'm supposed to be here. And there's the, and I have to, this is the way I represent myself in the world, you know? And, and, if, and if harm is brought to my body, it's not because I, I, I ask for it. I'm grace. I'm I'm grace personified moving through spaces. And 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 so it will highlight your brutality and your inhumanity. So that was definitely a choice with the way he moved his body through spaces. And he and at times, you know, I wanted to make sure he, there were images of him. He he would have his hand on his hip, you know, with his fingers out like sort of fluttering like a bird. And I feel like, oh, there's such an elegance to that. And I feel like the way he would pop his jacket, just in photos, you see that like, you know, the way men did that. And I was like, oh, there's a I don't know. He like he was all, in his own restoration comedy. <laughs> well, I mean, that, for me, that's kind of the connection. That's why I brought up Zola because they're both guys who want to be seen in what they're wearing. Yeah, and very aware of the way the world sees them. That's something I understand. I think the moment we we sat down with each other, we talked about style. We talked about oh, what are we wearing? Because we know that that's the first thing that people see. I've always was always raised that way. Like. I'm very clear about the story that I'm telling when I'm walking to a room. So whether I'm wearing a tuxedo or whether I'm wearing, you know, this this beautiful Xenia today that you loved and you admired. <laughs> I, I think you're looking for the word envied, but let's, people need to hear it. I'm turning green but here You're, on you're wearing this beautiful vintage leather jacket and everything, but it, it, it's our story. It's the way we tell our story. And I think that these men that you mentioned, and I know when I have costume design meetings with my the designers on these films, I'm very clear about the story we're telling and the fabrics and the cost. It wouldn't make sense to me. I mean, a lot of Bayard's suits, which is beautiful. I love that we talk about this. Before, there was a whole costume design story that he was changing clothes every time I turned around. And me and George were like, that doesn't feel right because guys maybe had four suits, you know, and you recycled them. I think that's part of the story. He is a, a man in service to this country. He worked for the War Resisters League and things like that. These people didn't have money for countless suits. You had a brown, a blue, um, a gray, and a, a gray and a black. Exactly. And then you had a sh- more shirts and ties. And that's where you had your style. It was the the the, the tie. It was the tie pin. Things. Like, so we made sure that like, oh, his suits were recycled. There, there weren't you know, 30 costume changes. No, I mean, I think about that that kind of physical affect. I was thinking about the way in Ma Rainey, going back to George 
Mm-hmm. Wolf again, the way he was using his arms because he wanted people to see the way he had the roll of his sleeve. Absol- I mean, oh my I mean, gosh, absolutely. Because I mean, a lot of these guys you play are peacocks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Even, even the way they, they part the hair, I make decisions on like, oh, he does a side part. I remember Chad, Chad Bozeman was like, he's a middle part, a younger dude, just like, you know, and flexing in that way. But I'm like, oh, mine's an old school dude. He's from the South. All the decisions about like, his a slight part. His hair is always just laid back. I was like, my character in, in particular, I was like, no, he's got a slight conk going on. So I processed my hair as well. I'm like, no, he's he's polished in elegance because that's what, he's an old school band member. He was the one who was the go-between between, between uh, the white establishment for Ma. So therefore he had to have a certain finesse and flair to be able to be the leader of the band as well as deal with his band. But he was... He was the first person that, you know, the white establishment saw when they would go into towns. So I knew that he needed to look, you know, more, I guess, debonair and what, what he believed white people needed to see him look. You know what I mean? So that was de- definitely, a, you know, a decision in every single way. We're talking about presentation with my guest, Golden Globe nominee, Emmy winner, Tony nominee, Colvin Domingo. He's got two things around now if you get a chance. Netflix, <laughs> there's Rustin, and theater near you, there's The Color Purple. You can also show a case here at w.com slash the treatment. But I want to get back to authorship because, again, I was thinking about Dot. And and those shows are about entrances. Yeah. I mean, you write you write entrances. Hmm. And as an actor, you <laughs> tend to gravitate towards entrances. It goes back to Shakespeare. I think, first of all, I love that we're talking about, rarely do I, I get to talk about my, my work as a writer. And I think because people really? know. Yeah, because people know me and say, in different silos, you know, now people know me from television and film, but the people who really know me who go way back, they know that how I started was really, I wanted to be a writer and how I write plays and musicals. And I still keep my, my in screenplays now, but my writing work, I think it still stems from, I've always been a fan of like Neil Simon and Nikki Silver, these very interesting playwrights who write about family. My, most of my work is about family in some way. It's combustion, and it's, there's a potency in family and history, and then there's something in the middle, and there's need and want and desire, and then there's heartbreak. Like when you mentioned my play Dot, it's always an experiment, but that was my my dining room table drama dedicated to family and memory, and it deals with a, a matriarch with dementia and the family, and it becomes the gift that no one wanted. Because it's 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 going to change a family in in many ways, but it's this black family in West Philadelphia a couple of days before the holidays, and it's combustible. Everyone's coming in with their own baggage, but they have to deal with mom who has the most. But it's also a dark comedy. I was just saying, so it's, it's I, got, it's, I never write like you know very special plays about like dementia. I'm like, no, the first time dementia is mentioned in the play, it's actually a laugh, laugh line. line. Yeah, but yeah. there's this thing. <laughs> right, those right. entrances are farce entrances. I mean, yes. it's like Fado. People are coming in, absolutely. Everyone, so, everyone, they, everyone, because I feel like. It goes back to my roots with Shakespeare. Shakespeare, the first line of a, of a Shakespeare play will tell you a lot about the character, what they want, what they need, what happens if they don't get it. And then you're on that journey. So I feel like everyone has an entrance. No one just comes in quietly, or if they do, that's part of their character and their journeys for them to also to find their voice at some point. So for me, I always look at the arc and I can break down the arc of every character, like how they begin and then how they end. My sister Avery has my actual real sister has showed up in many of my plays because she's a fascinating character. She's she has size. She's wild. She's guttural. She's like pache. She's a, she's she's guts and, and earth and all that stuff. And she's really really kind of like ghetto. And that's a, a term that I can use. But but she's very much I, like and I can hear it. <laughs> you know, but everything in every single way. But 
she's so feisty and colorful and vibrant. But then when you get down to it, she's also the person that is the caregiver for elderly in her neighborhood. And she's got so much heart and she's so kind. And so it's a character that I don't usually see. So I usually start with sort of a trope of a character. That That's in a lot of your plays where these are characters you introduce as archetypes. Yeah, totally. And, and they and come in big because so often when you see They're a noisy. black character come in big and noisy, you think, oh, you, there's an expectation and there is a the reduction. And then I pull we the do. rug out from Oh, them. almost immediately. Yes, and say, oh, that's actually who the character is. So for me, it makes you rethink what you think about the character, what you think about that girl with the big door knocker earrings in the back of bus who's loud and everything. But you're like, oh, I think I understand. I have a bit more insight to her and why she's that way. These are characters I love so much, and I feel like they don't usually get their space. So I write for them. It's this kind of this shell game where you go, this yeah. is what you think you're getting. This is what it is. But it starts off with such a high level, sort of like, it, it's, yeah. it's that, it's taking that archetype and going, laugh. And for some black people, you kind of go, I'm laughing, but where's this going to go? Exactly. And then it's not even before the first act is over. It's like, <laughs> oh, because as more people come into those rooms, then we get to see this this real, this expanse of black life. Hmm. But it, again, it takes me back to that beautiful Donna Summer play. Because I think that oh, thing thank is you. beautiful. Oh, thank you, man. And that it, was a joy to, joy to write. But it was also about, again, you're seeing this thing, wanting to put this thing up that hadn't been seen. Yeah. This take on her that hadn't been seen before. Yeah. Of who she was. Not just this disco diva or whatever. But somebody who, who was, in her way, continuing the tradition of Dinah Washington. Yeah. And that kind of thing. Now that we're talking about this, always, I think there's something... And I use this word a few times in this this conversation today, and I realize I think that that's what I'm very interested in doing is sort of deconstructing, deconstructing an idea about someone, unpacking that and just wondering, getting to the core of who they are. I think that's what people actually really want. I think I like the idea of people walking into a space thinking they're going to get one thing, thinking, oh, think, oh, I know Donna Summer. I know we're going to get the greatest hits. It's going to make me feel good. But actually, I want to pull the rug out and say, actually, this is the woman behind it. This is what fueled her and why she made choices that she did. Then it makes it more human and you can find yourself in that person. And so it takes that person off the pedestal that you have them on. I've been writing um, a film version of a, about Nat King Cole. It's the first time I've ever told anybody. But wow. I've been working on this for a while. And I've been interested in deconstructing him because he's such a an idea in many ways of like, you know, people listen to his music. You have an idea about him, about his grace, about his charm. But also this is a man who was navigated in the 1950s. And, man who had to wear makeup to be lighter on television. Absolutely. It's like, and like, so the choices that, that go into there or like, I think that there's something deeper and darker and I think subversive about how he was navigating spaces. The first, this is wonderful because nobody ever talks about the fact that he used to lighten himself up so much for television to be palatable, to be on TV. And what does that do to a person or, or what agreements that were had or done to do that? This man was darker than I am, you know, but he absolutely did it. But yet still people are like, oh, he's the most graceful gentleman. He was always filled with light and took, you know, oh, even when no, he was I mean, almost being dragged off stages by the oh Ku Klux Klan and stuff. You just hear the early instrumental stuff where you can hear... He hit the keys he's really incredible, hard. Incredible, incredible. But, I mean, but there's a real attack on the keys. Yeah. And then when he started to sing, he changed the, the, the approach and the keys. And that's and that's exactly what, I, what I'm exploring with him. It's like, yeah, that there's still... Listen, as someone who, who understands living in these spaces that we have to navigate through our careers as black men, there is a choice. I think grace is a choice. 
I naturally tried to uh, explore that with Nat King Cole. Grace is a choice. Is it always a choice to take the high road? But there is a lot of fire and fuel underneath, and that, that fuels your art, fuels your creativity, and and keeps you moving. So I'm like, I want to explore what's underneath, and then what you have to put on as a face to navigate these spaces. I think that's interesting, and I think for me, deconstructing Nat King Cole is also deconstructing America in many ways. Well, we start out talking about music and we end with music. Uh, of course, the musicality of Coleman Domingo, who's starring in, I think it's called Rustin on Netflix. Yes, He's yes. also one of the stars of the adaptation of the adaptation of the adaptation of The Color Purple in movie theaters. So glad I finally got you here. Thank oh, you for doing this, Thank Coleman. you. Thank you for having me. He's won an Emmy and a Tony. And this weekend, actor Coleman Domingo has the opportunity to add a Golden Globe to his collection for his portrayal of Beard Rustin in the biopic Rustin, now on Netflix. He's also starring in the film adaptation of the musical The Color Purple, now in theaters. Other provocateurs can be heard at the archives at kcrw.com slash the treatment. More stirring up to come. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's The Treatment. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Join Jacqueline Coley as she hosts a brand new podcast, Seen on the Screen. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that define them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Seen on the Screen is available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. It's the treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. I've been trying to get my guest, Rashida Jones, to do the show for a very long time. <laughs> and finally, she just happened to answer the phone. And here I am. It's the thrill to have her here. And she was responsible for the adaptation for Hulu of the terrific best-selling novel, The Other Black Girl, or as I like to call it, The Stepford Hair. First of all, Rashida, <laughs> it's, so great to, <laughs> it's so great to have you here. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good I haven't heard that. That's a good one. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. One of the things that I, I so love about this adaptation is that in a weird way, it feels like an answer to Parks and Rec, which you starred on. You turn the book into kind of a workplace comedy, but just with all the kind of awkwardness of macro and micro aggression. And I want to ask you if that's one of the things you saw in the book when you read it. When I first read the book, I just couldn't stop reading it. I couldn't put it down. It just was so well-written and funny and well-observed. And, you know, I like things that take a shot at observing something from the side or from the back or the front or the bottom or whatever, Uh, you know, something that just can find a way into talking about a cultural moment in a way that feels fresh and, and funny and maybe not even that real. But then I guess as we started to develop in an adaptation, when you serialize something, what is your, what's your episode? You know, what, what's the thing you keep people waiting for? What, what's the meat of 
the interaction between the characters. And the thing that stood out to me in the book was the, the workplace for sure, because I think it's relatable beyond just the scope of publishing, but just the kind of like, like I could picture the kind of the little ticky ticky typing of nails and the phone calls and the white noise and feel the kind of like clinical oppressive cubicle setting. And that as a place to start for a main character who can't be her full self is such a, it's such a gift. It's immediately oppressive and claustrophobic, and it feels like there's no air in any of those rooms. And that's really a telling detail that you brought to, you guys brought to it. I think balancing the the internal paranoia, Nella's internal paranoia, and the reality of being kind of haunted, whether it's real or not, it was important to kind of get that that right. And and the way to get that right is to rely on the on what's actually happening, which is like this place that, you know, there's not that many of people who feel othered. You know, I always think like, isn't it fascinating that there's people that don't feel uncomfortable in that kind of environment? <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what I think about all the time. Like a lot of people are okay with this and actually they like it and they, they prefer it that way. So, but anyway, yes, I think the the visual of that, and luckily we had such great collaborators you know, you can write as much as you want, but unless you have somebody to br- really bring that to life and make that sing in a visual way, it's not going to work. So, and we were so lucky to have Mariama Diallo, who directed the pilot and, and another episode, she, who really understands genre and horror. And that that for us was really important to keep the suspense part of it alive. And here's where I get to put you on the spot, Rashida, and ask you to explain what the show is about. The Other Black Girl is a show about a young, smart, ambitious, aspiring editor who works at a publishing house that is very white. And she finds herself kind of with the opportunity to excel at work. And also, there's an a new black girl who comes to work, who's kind of like her potential best friend, but maybe there's something not completely right about her. She can't figure out what it is. And it's, it's a, it's kind of a comedy mystery about finding a sense of your own ambitious and what's important to you and how much you're willing to pay for said ambition and for the successes that you want. Because the book is almost like a piece of reporting. And and what happens in the show is we get to see the world around Nella as she's living it and her reaction to it. Also, the other characters really land. like That, that first meeting with what seems like her best friend and just the kind of envy created by the boss. And the, the actor who plays Nella is so wonderful because we can see just the excitement and relief on her face of talking to another person of color who doesn't have the same experience she has. I mean, just talking about going to Howard is compared to UVA and all these things. That's such an incredibly nuanced and, and dense piece of writing, that one scene. There was so much to to chew on as a writer in the book and then to continue and, and you know, with me and then also all the great writers in the writer's room and our showrunners, Gus and Jordan, is that like there are all of these moments where you can 
quote unquote, look in the mirror, right? You're like so happy that you see somebody that's like you. And then you kind of slowly start to realize, yes, you have things in common. Yes, you can, you can share these kind of like these cultural inside jokes, but then there's things that are completely different. And then obviously by the end of the series, the polarity couldn't be any wider because their hearts and their intentions are different and how they got to this place in their career is very different. So yes, like the the idea too, that Mello would be faced with this kind of like the perfect coolest lives in Harlem, went to Howard is the full realization of herself at work in a way that like Nella couldn't even do if she wanted to do. It's just to, to set the stage so that when you actually do get to the mystery part of it and Hazel's secret, you don't, you know, you feel a little bit like, wow, I'm disappointed too. Cause I was really doing some hero worship myself. I mean, a lot of things have changed by the end of the, of the run, but still Nella needs or wants to connect with other people. And then there's a, a kind of an, epic question asked of her that makes that I think all the more powerful how, how much will she give up you know it's a line mark eight what does a proper man gain a whole world and lose lose his soul I mean that's still the question the show doesn't judge her for being ambitious which is I think interesting too yeah and and hopefully I mean I don't want to spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it but, but hopefully this conversation makes people want to see it if they haven't but hopefully we did our job in the sense that like even the women that did choose to use this tool to, I don't, don't want to say too much, but like to make their, their lives presumably easier. Hopefully you don't even judge them because hopefully we make the case that existing in the world and existing in the workplace, when you can't bring all of yourself to that is so disheartening that like, if you had the magic to kind of like pull back from that, that would make you feel better. I don't know. Would you use it? Who knows? But, but that you wouldn't judge somebody who did. No, but I mean, that moment I was talking about, and I'm trying not to give too much away here either, by the way, when Hazel and and Nella meet. And for a second, it looks like the show is going to judge Nella for not having had that same experience. But it helps so much that Sinclair Daniels' eagerness is so transparent um, but also it w- it's not written in the way we, we end up judging her for not having had the same experience because so often we get that sort of thing and you live this life so you know as well as anybody that somebody who hasn't had an archetypal black experience but is still a person of color is looked down upon and I just thought that was a really generous moment that, and that could have gone that way for an easy laugh you and, and on the, in the pilot you guys don't do that Well, Sinclair, as you said, I mean, there couldn't have been anybody else to play that part because she reveals so much in her face over like five seconds. You can see her enthusiasm, her disappointment, her discomfort, her confusion, her ambition. She makes that part sing and she does so much without dialogue, which is like, you know, a writer's dream because then you don't have to, you know, you can try and write what you want your character to seemingly feel on screen, but you know, you never, you can't, you can't do that. You can't do what she's doing. So that's just, we just got very lucky in that way. But yes, I mean, the, the in between, like it's something I've always been interested in, in every area of my life, because I, I'm in between, you know, like I, I have shared experience with people, but then I also, there's some things about me that are not archetypal. And it's, I, I hope to see that 
all the time on screen. Like that's, it doesn't even matter if the person looks like me. What I want to see is the discomfort in the in-between moments, because I think if everybody was being very honest with themselves, everybody has a little bit of that. I don't know anybody who walks around feeling like, oh, I got this. I feel completely seen and I, and I'm completely myself at every moment, you know, because how would, how would that work? I hope we're doing the show right and it makes you want to see The Other Black Girl, which is on Hulu. The person who developed it and brought it to television, if you still have one of those, is Rashida Jones. It's The Treatment, which you can also hear at kcrw.com slash The Treatment. You know, what's really chilling is there's a moment that's, I guess, kind of bookends because we're introduced to the show by seeing a young version of her best friend, Kendra Ray Phillips. And then there's a bookend kind of with a talk show from that era and what you'll get to sort of see the friendship unravel on the talk show, the way that is the kind of thing used to happen in the 80s. And just sort of watch a wedge being driven between two women of color like that. To me, I felt the horror in that in a way that I didn't anticipate. Interesting, yeah. I mean, I think the periodness of it, and also it's the first time you really see Kendra Ray and Diana like present together as like this kind of powerful team and, and and to see it so quickly devolve. And again, it's just uncomfortable because it's exactly the thing you're not supposed to do at a time when like, there's no room to do that. You know, it's not even like now, maybe, maybe there's like a little bit more room, but then it was like, Oh, you, if you didn't have that United front, forget it. Their entire story relied on the beauty of their friendship. So it's the beginning of the, the storytelling towards the end of the, the show where you're really starting to feel like, oh, it must be really bad that these two couldn't keep it together, that they couldn't, you know, maintain this friendship because a lot was at stake, not just personally, but professionally. That you could be you and to bring this to the screen, talking to another woman of color and neither of you has to try to translate for the other because there's so much in the book that I think is subtextual that you give a kind of a visual component to in the show. And I would, I would marvel at that constantly. Yeah. Well, honestly, part of that is how you bring something to life. And this was like such a, such a great experience because, you know, we had a writer's room and seven out of the nine people in the room were black women. So there is there is a shorthand that you don't even have to. I've never been in a situation like that before. You can get deep so fast and you can start talking about things so fast because there's no there's no translation lag time. It just changes everything. It just changes the way you approach everything, really. You must have been heartened that you could sound all those notes and get them played for the public if I can torture a metaphor here. Yes, no. I mean, it is extremely heartening. The whole process was heartening because I think it just takes time to adapt a book into a TV show because it's, I think a book to a movie is maybe one step. And then a book to a TV show is two steps because you have the serialized quality. You have to take the internal to the external, and then you have the serialized quality and Hulu stuck with us and they, and they saw the show and, and they saw that we saw the show from the very beginning and just supported us to get to the thing that we saw originally, you know, to like catch up to that with the writing. I think ultimately to me, the biggest success is black women are not a monolith and 
not to be too lofty, but the the idea that you can have a show where there's so many different versions of black women interacting with each other, friends, enemies, competitors, allies, that that feels like progress to me. Yeah. Like she has a white boyfriend. There's complete scenes with two black women talking and they're not talking about the white people around them. Like whatever the, the you know, like the, the modified Bechdel test is like, it's just, it was so nice to just be in this world and like talk about character and explore race and explore gender, but then also just have a lot of different characters without having to feel like they all have to be something or represent something because if they don't, then it's going to be bad for us and it's going to be bad for the world. So that to me feels like the biggest headline is that just, just the, the richness of character and that there can be so many different types of black women in one place, really. There's so much to talk to you about, Rashida. I'm sorry we're running out of time here. But just thinking about the last few years have been for you to go from Black AF to then doing the documentary Quincy. And each of these things is, I think, helped audiences to see more and more of you. And I'm wondering if it's, if it's feeling to you in some ways that you're getting to explore parts of yourself that you wouldn't have got to explore 15 years ago when people were seeing you in Parks and Recs and just sort of thought that one thing of you. In fact, in some ways in that show, you were treated as kind of the Nella or the bad version of Nella as kind of the placeholder and getting to really offer up these parts of yourself. I wonder if this, this really felt like as exciting a time for you as it does for those of us following you. Yeah, absolutely. The world has changed. Hollywood has changed. I didn't I didn't see like, you know, because of the way I look, I would, I would always fall in between parts and I would go in for roles and they wouldn't think I was black enough or I wasn't kind of like, or I'd go in and it wouldn't be blonde and white enough or whatever it was. And now, you know, between being able to make a movie about my dad and his, you know, ridiculous career and, you know, Kenya Barris give me an opportunity to play you know, like a pretty fun character, but somebody who's actually me, who's half black. And, and then also she has her own thing, which is like her overcompensation for that and having to be even blacker than anybody else because of that. Like those are stories that are like so fun and funny to tell because they're, they're, they're real to me and real to my world. And then, yeah, like being able to, you know, give whatever part of myself that can be helpful to telling the story of the other black girl, which is like living in the in-between and not, not being what people expect of me or, you know, wanting to be my full self. Like I, yeah, it's been a really, really lucky time where I, I feel like I get to explore the entire spectrum of it and I get to plug in in a way where I can hopefully, you know, say something that's, that feels true to me and, and hopefully other people. Well, since we've run out of time and we finally know her number, maybe we can get Rashida Jones to come back. Her newest project is the adaptation of The Other Black Girl for Hulu. And Rashida, thanks so much for doing this. My pleasure. I'll be back really soon. Tomorrow? If you got it, it ain't a question. Oh, it ain't no one for guessing. No more than emotionally invested. Showing you all my imperfections. Oh. Rashida Jones, a student and creator of comedy. Her newest project is a Hulu series adaptation, The Other Black Girl, on which she serves as executive producer. 
I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's the treatment. It's the treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. With the treat, the director of the documentary on Pink Floyd founder Sid Barrett. It's called Have You Got It Yet? Director Roddy Bagawa chose a project that created its own rhythms and soundscape. Hi, my name's Roddy Bagawa, and this is the treat. <laughs> And my treat would probably be the film that completely hijacked my life, which was a film called Poto and Cabango by the film director Jean-Pierre Guerin. I was an undergrad at UC San Diego, and I took a history of film course, and Jean-Pierre was about 20 minutes late. There was about 300 people in, in the audience. And in San Diego at that time, everybody had dogs and Frisbees, and it was total chaos. And then after 20 minutes, in waddled Jean-Pierre, and uh, he said, this is where the history of cinema started. And the lights went down, and Michael Powell's film Peeping Tom came on. And the lights came up, and he wasn't there. And that was the first week of the film course. And after that, I just was like a magnet on him. Scientists have been baffled in recent weeks by the conversations of the pretty black-haired twins who understand English, German, sign language, and a smattering of Spanish, but who for five years have spoken only in what appears to be a language of their own. Their conversations are unintelligible, even to their parents. He let me watch Poto and Cabango, and when I saw that, I thought, wow, I can make a movie. I never thought growing up in Los Angeles I would ever be able to make films, and I saw that, and I was like, this was really made with two rocks and a stick, and I got two rocks and a stick and a few ideas. What does Gracie call you? Dini. Oh, sometimes she calls you something else. What does she call you? Cabango. Cabango, right. Mm -hmm. What do you call Gracie? Poto. Poto. <laughs> We're going to look at some things today. I literally, I was like, wow, this is like a punk rock movie. This is like really super smart, but made with nothing, you know, very, very little, you know, means. And so then that's when I started, you know, making my first short films after that. I was like, okay. I could kind of do that. I just borrow a camera, you know, hustle some film up, and then and then start shooting. But the press wasn't answering the obvious question: What are they saying? What are they saying? You can only be a foreigner in a language other than your own. But these two were foreigners in their own language, and that's where the fascination was. That's probably partially Jean Pierre's fault. That you know, every film sort of autobiographical in some way about, you know, my obsessions. You know, that's all, that's his big talk is about obsessiveness all the time. And so that's really the, the treat, I would say, that set me off on my path, which has determined everything since then.
director Roddy Bagawa on Jean-Pierre Gorin's film, Poto and Gambengo. Other treats that confound spellcheck, such as director Brett Morgan's Reverberate at KCRW.com slash the treat. Music to the ears and the heart. Though these moments of impact that sing inspiration to the souls of creative talents of all types aren't always literally music. They could be films, books, paintings, teachers, family. The moments we call the treat. The show is produced and edited by Rebecca Mooney and mixed by Katie Gilchrist. Our thanks to Health Man Abbas and Laura Kandarajan. Happy New Year to them. Let me be among the last to wish you Happy New Year and to better days. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's the treatment. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.